That was a wonderful song we sang about the Ancient of Days. And I don't know if you know this, but the Ancient of Days is a title given to the Lord Jesus in Daniel chapter 7 of the Bible. And it's a, it's a picture of one coming on the clouds and the description given uh, to him there is very similar to the one that we just read last week in Revelation chapter 1. But it's a picture of Christ as the Ancient of Days who has come to deliver His people and to judge the world. But, uh, it's a wonderful song as we sing to remember who it is that we serve, who Jesus is. Now, um, if you have your Bibles with you, you can open to Revelation chapter 2. We'll be in verses 1 through 7. Now, as you're turning there, um, I'll tell you a little story. Very short. A couple of years ago, I tried to grow an avocado tree. I had it in the right light. I had prepared it. Do you know how you prepare them? You put toothpicks in them. Maybe you saw this and you put it in the water and you wait for it to sprout. It takes about forever. Uh, I, I did everything I knew how to make the avocado tree grow, but it just wouldn't grow. Even when it looked like it was starting to come, it got cold and it was over. The environment in Canada, I learned, creates very many obstacles to growing a fruitful, vibrant avocado tree. Well, the same can be said for the church in Canada. It's an environment that certainly is not friendly to the flourishing of vibrant, fruitful churches. And some churches respond to this challenge by sequestering themselves away. Let's just put up the walls all around, and that's it. Maybe others in more affluent, self-sufficient communities, they're tempted to just coast along in ease and comfort, trusting in their finances for security. Others are stained by the scandal of sexual immorality as, as they give in to the pressures and temptations of the world around them. And, and most churches are feeling the derision of a culture that increasingly sees the church as unhitched from reality in the 21st century. At best, the church is backward. At worst, it's threatening and dangerous to the social order. And this produces enormous pressure on the church. And in response, some churches have become experts in doctrine, but cold as a corpse. There's no threat from something that's dead. Others have become increasingly unclear about where to draw the lines morally and doctrinally and have adopted, uh, adopted their message or adapted their message in order to uh, reach out and fit in a little better in the world. And even still, others are all hype and all image and there's no spiritual reality whatsoever. And there amidst all the noise, there's just a small uh, group of churches that are just trying to be faithful. Does that sound like the condition of the church in Canada today? Right? Struggling against coldness, against compromise, and against so many things? It is. But it isn't just in Canada. You could say the same thing about New England. You could say the same thing about many of the, many of the states, all of the states. You could say it about churches in Asian countries or churches in Europe. 
In fact, you could say it about any region that Christianity has influenced or has existed ever. Because these problems are problems that the church is always facing in every generation. And so that description that so aptly described the church today was just as true almost 2,000 years ago at the heart of the Christian world. It was Asia Minor then, or today, modern-day Turkey. In fact, all of those challenges facing the church were a list from chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation and the difficulties that were facing those churches there because these dangers to the church, they never really go away. They, they rear their heads in every generation and Christians must always be aware and on guard against them. So, let's now turn to our passage and look at our passage. Revelation 2, 1 through 7. It's the first of seven letters to the churches and this one is to the church at Ephesus. Revelation 2, it's the last book of the Bible. Verses 1 through 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks amongst the seven lampstands, I know your works. This is Jesus speaking to the church at Ephesus. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place until you repent. Yet you have this. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Oh, let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that you would make by your spirit the things that we sing and the things that we've sung and what we hear help us, Lord, to understand. Lord, that you would come and write on our hearts by your power, by your spirit, what you would have us to know and to learn and to see in your word. And I pray that you would be with your people this morning and be with us here that you would challenge, reveal, change, work in the hearts of this people. They're your people, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that you would, that you would own us as your own. That we would know that you have. And that you would help us to understand the glories of of your word. Lord, help me to preach and help us to hear. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, we're returning to the first of seven 
cycles in the book of Revelation as we work our way through the book. And the theme of this cycle, if you remember, I mentioned there were seven distinct sections in the book. And the theme of this one, found in chapters 1 through 3, is faithfulness in suffering. It's a, a call for the church to endure and to be faithful to the end. And we've been encouraged so far in the previous chapter with the revealing of Christ in the midst of the churches. It's reminding us that Jesus is right here with us, that He isn't far off. And for the seven churches here in the book of Revelation, we just read about one, there are six more to come, the nearness of Christ is meant to both encourage and admonish. It's meant to encourage the churches, Jesus is near. It's meant to admonish the churches. Jesus is at hand. Now before we get to these, these letters, which really are less like formal letters and more like prophetic pronouncements, uh, before we, we get to them, there's at least one more thing to notice about the structure of the book of Revelation. I was, I was hoping to be done with the introduction by this point, but uh, it really is unavoidable because it's, it's necessary to make sense of what's being said. The, the structure, the layout of the book matters. It's like poetry. The way that stanzas and verses are all arranged, they tell us something about the meaning of the poem. And, and the reason pointing this out is necessary, well, let's not kid ourselves. We're not very good at noticing this kind of thing. I mean, we're not. We, we don't have the time to sit down and figure out what the author is trying to communicate by the way he arranged what he said. This is why we have trouble with poetry sometimes. That's why uh, sometimes songs, you listen to them, and it just seems so shallow and, and unpoetic. After three or four generations of, of pragmatic and modern and even secular thinking, we've, we've lost our ability to understand or appreciate poetry and form and structure and writing. All we want are the facts in the most basic, naked style, straightforward, nothing fancy. For example, Aesop's Fables. You've probably heard the one about the tortoise and the hare. I'm assuming everybody here knows that story. Well, it was written thousands of years ago. And when it was, it did not conclude with, and the moral of the story is, slow and steady wins the race. Because anyone who heard it in that ancient time was contemplative enough, they were thoughtful enough to get the point without needing to be told. Nobody had to come along and say the moral of the story is. They would hear the story and they would say, I know exactly what the point is and how this applies to me. And the Bible was written in a time when people could think that way. They could hear a story, they could understand without being told how it applied to them. They could see how the structure of a poem was important to understanding it. And so the book of the Revelation doesn't give us often the moral of the story. It assumes we'll be able to understand what the Lord is saying. Now all that to say that in some regard this book and its structure is poetic. And seeing this will help us to understand it. And these seven churches, again introductory stuff, the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3 are actually arranged in a chiasm. Chiasm was very, uh, a very popular way of writing poetry in the ancient world. We have forms of poetry today, like couplets and, and limericks and different ways of writing poetry. Well, this was a chiasm. You often see it in the, in, in the, in the Psalms. How many of you know what a chiasm is? It's okay. You can, okay. One. 
All right, well, a chiasm, uh, a helpful way to think of it is a stepped pyramid. You've seen stepped pyramids. They come up and they have a step and then they step up again and they step up again until they get to a peak. And in a chiasm, you have two points on either side that correspond to one another as you work your way up. So, for example, step one would correspond at the start with step one at the end, and then you come up and step uh, two to step six, step three to step five, and then four in the middle. Just, uh, just let's use these seven churches as an example. The church at Ephesus, the first church, and the church at Laodicea, the seventh mentioned. Both of those churches are in the greatest danger. Even though one of the churches is much commended and the other not commended at all, both are in danger of being hurled out of the presence of Christ. In, in Ephesians, you'll lose your lampstand. At Laodicea, I will spit you out of my mouth. Those two churches at either end are in the greatest danger. They're no longer going to be with Christ. But the second and the sixth churches, next step up on either side, Jesus only has good things to say about them. No, no uh, condemnation to those churches, no warnings to those churches at all. And then the next step up, you have two churches that are mixed. I've got some commendations. I've got some serious problems. And then in the middle, church four, Thyatira. Well, if you actually look in Revelation, that's the longest letter. And that church kind of encapsulates the whole of the other six. So it begins and ends with churches in terrible danger. It goes on to churches that are faithful and it peaks with churches that are good but have some serious deficiencies that need to be addressed. And this serves to remind us, it's arranged in this way, to show us that the perception of the church as a whole is not healthy. Now Christ wants it to be healthy. That's why he sends these messages. He wants the church to be healthy. He wants the church to be strong. But that's not always the case. And history proves it. Faithful churches are few. Some are always on the verge of falling away, and many are a mixture. They have good things going for them, commendable things, but at the same time, some serious errors that need to be repented of. And what the structure of these churches is communicating is that generally, that's what the church is like. You'll always find churches in any generation in danger of falling away. You'll always find some faithful churches. You'll always find churches that are mixed. Now this helps us, by the way, to pray for the churches. Helps us to, to think about what should we think about a church that is on the path to, uh, to apostasy, to falling away. What should we th how should we think about a church that is a mixture and, and has some things going on there that really are inappropriate. Well, we should have the attitude of Christ that He has towards His churches. He commends them, but He calls them to repent. And so if we're praying for the, for the churches in our area, we should pray first that they would repent and that their lampstands would not be removed. Pray that they would see their errors and turn from them, not continue on in them and be spit out from the mouth of Christ. That's what the structure of these seven churches is communicating. But it's not just this first cycle that's laid out this way. The whole book is, is magnificently arranged with a kind of poetic cadence. Now, I've talked a lot about seven cycles, and that's because there are seven of them in the book, and it's, it's important to see them, but they're also arranged chiastically. 
of the seven cycles, the first uh, are these letters to the churches. And it's a call for the church to endure to the end. Well, the last cycle, cycle seven, is the vindication of the church. And so here is a, a call for the church to be faithful. And then at the very end, in the last of seven sections, that endurance is rewarded. And you see what that endurance and overcoming earns. Cycle two, the seven seals, is about the righteous suffering in this world. In cycle six, some ways, it's about the righteous being delivered from suffering. In cycle three, it's about the wicked suffering in history. And in cycle five, it's about the wicked being judged at the end of history. In cycle four, right in the middle is where the whole history of the church is looked at and laid out. And it is severe, but Christ is victorious in the end. And we're shown what it means to endure. And so this book is really laid out in a, in a masterful, artful way that helps us to better understand and appreciate what it has to say. Now, now to the letters themselves. And one thing you may have noticed if you've read them is that there are repetition in these letters. Seven, seven parts that are repeated in every letter. And every letter first, there is a command from Christ to write. This is a tacit acknowledgement that these letters are not from John, not from an intermediary. They are exactly the words of Christ. And even though that doesn't take away from anything else in Scripture, it's all the Word of God. We know that. And, and even though this, uh, it doesn't make this passage necessarily more important than others, it doesn't you know, allow it to supersede other things, it does add a certain emphasis and urgency knowing that Jesus is the one speaking. It's like in the Gospels when Jesus tells the disciples, truly, truly, I say to you. What, what, what that means is, pay attention, I'm about to say something important. Right? So here Christ is calling the church to listen up, to pay attention. Second, in all of these letters, is a description of Christ drawn from chapter 1. Something about Jesus that these churches need to hear in order to persevere over the particular challenge that they're facing. In the case of Ephesus, Jesus is the one who walks amongst the lampstands. He is intimately in all of the churches. Third, the church is commended. Jesus tells the church what they're doing right. Fourth, there is an accusation of some sin. Something is going on in the church that ought not to be tolerated or allowed. And it begins with, but I have this against you. And every accusation has to do with worldliness or idolatry. They're living too much like the world, or they're compromising and adopting the standards of the world for one reason or another. The church is not being distinct from the world like it was called to. Fifth, the church is exhorted to repent with a warning of judgment. Literally, Jesus comes to these churches and says, repent or else. But he doesn't just do it with churches broadly. He also speaks to individuals in those churches. And you see the division here between those who are faithful in a congregation and maybe those who are unfaithful in a congregation. Especially you see this in Thyatira, the church at Thyatira. But uh, they're threatened severely if they do not repent. Sixth, the churches are called to discern the truth of what is said. It's the same every time. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And that's not a call to, to listen. That's a call to listen up. 
or listen here and take seriously what's being said. Take it to heart. Understand. Heed the warning. And finally, seven, a promise to each of the churches. To he who overcomes, to he who conquers, whatever the challenge was, they are met with an appropriate promise. And these promises to the churches actually appear over and over in the book, but especially in the last chapters. Especially in the last chapters. This is why I said it corresponds to the, the, the seventh cycle and the first. For example, the tree of life promised to Ephesus shows up again in chapter 22.2 and 22.4. The second death that will not touch those who overcome, who conquer, it reappears in chapter 20.14. The new name promised to those who conquer, it comes up over and over again, especially in the end of the book. And so these promises are things to look for, for their fulfillment later on. And so we have seven letters written to seven real, well-known churches that still existed when it was written. Now, all but one of these cities, all, all but Ephesus, actually still exist even today. And these churches are facing problems particular to them but also problems that universally face the church throughout the ages. And the first of these churches addressed is the church in Ephesus. Ephesus was one of the largest cities in the ancient world. It was in the top ten, over 100,000 people. It had an accessible harbor, and it was easy to reach on land. It made it a natural destination for delegates and for commerce traveling east to west. So it was a large and a wealthy city. It also had a strong Christian influence. Along with Antioch, it became a center of Christianity on the Mediterranean Sea. Paul spent over three years there in the book of Acts, preaching and establishing a church. And John the Apostle, before he was exiled to the island of Patmos, that's where he was sent. He was a pastor at Ephesus before he was exiled to Patmos. But he pastored the church there for a very long time. And in fact, after his exile, returned to Ephesus to continue to pastor. So it was, uh, it was an economically prosperous city, and the church there was growing. But what Ephesus was really known for was its grand temple to Artemis, or to Diana, if you're Roman or if you're reading the King James. The temple was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And as such, the city was a center of religious devotion to the goddess Artemis. The, the priests of this temple, they had, they had vast wealth, they had land holdings, and they were the ruling class of the city. Not only that, it, it made the city quite a tourist attraction. Religious tourism was popular in the ancient world, and people would travel from all over to see this great temple. Like I said, it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was along, alongside the pyramids, the library at Alexandria, the, the Mount Olympus and the Temple of Zeus. This was a massive and impressive structure. People would come from all over to see it. And while they were there, as a sign of devotion or of uh, uh, memorabilia, right, they would buy little silver statues of Artemis. And these statues were dug up and found all over the Roman world and beyond. In fact, if you remember in the book of Acts, Paul preaches in Ephesus against idolatry, and here the, the whole city gets into an uproar. Right? Artemis is, 
is offended. They're offending our God. And more importantly, no one's going to buy the little silver statues anymore if he keeps preaching like this. There's always an economic motivation in there somewhere. And so they were zealous for their money and used their goddess as a cover for it. But what do they do? I mean, they come out into the streets of Ephesus and for two hours nonstop chant over and over, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians, while they're rioting. So needless to say, if, uh, if you wanted to be a Christian in the city of Ephesus, it would require some discernment. I mean, evidently, and evidently, these Ephesian Christians had it because they're commended. Jesus knows their works. He knows what they've been doing, and what they've been doing is good. He commends them for refusing to tolerate the evil that's going on around them. They're not tolerating the evil. They're seeking to live upstanding lives, righteous lives. They're seeking to live good lives in their generation. They're not going to, to do all the things that everyone around them is doing and enjoying. They're going to follow Christ. They put false apostles to the test and find them to be lacking. They're commended for that. You know, it seems like there's never, never any shortage of those who are claiming to be apostles that come to harass the church. I bet we have more self-proclaimed apostles today than any time in the history of the church. Now, they aren't, of course. The age of apostles came to a close in the first century. Right? Because listen, in order to be an apostle, you needed two things. You needed a direct commission from Christ, and you needed to be confirmed by someone who already was an apostle. And they were given, essentially, inspiration or wisdom from the Holy Spirit for either the writing of the New Testament or ministering when there was no New Testament. So it's a special work, a special task given for the early church. You know, sometimes I like to ask, how many apostles were there? Usually people answer, 12. But that's not true. There were at least 16. At least. There's the 11, Judas' replacement, Matthias, in, uh, Paul in Acts 14.14. 14. Uh, Paul is an apostle. In Acts 14.14, 14, Barnabas is called an apostle. James, a brother of Jesus, is called an apostle in Galatians. In 1 Thessalonians 2.6, Paul calls Silas an apostle with him. And so there were more than 12 at the beginning time of the church. And so it was necessary for the church just to test those claiming to be apostles. And at this, Ephesus excelled. That's the, that's the character of the church. They're theologically precise. They're doctrinally, doctrinally sound. They're morally upright. They're seeking to be pure. And they're enduring hardship for the sake of the name of Christ. And it's not hard to envision what kind of, what kind of hardships they might endure living in a, in a center of pagan idolatry. It sounds like the church is doing really good, doesn't it? I mean, we, we would look at this church and say they're a, they're a bulwark of the faith. They're doing everything right. They looked like they had everything together and they were a healthy, vibrant church. I mean, what, what could be lacking? They've got their doctrine right. They're defending the faith. They're living upright lives. They're suffering the, 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 the hardships of the world around them. Persecution from the pagans. 
What do they lack? Remember in the book of Revelation, not everything is as it at first appears. This is a book of revealing. And in Ephesus, for all its strengths, it's actually in terrible danger. It doesn't just have a problem to be resolved, but they're threatened to have their very lampstand removed. Do you know what that means? That means no longer in the presence of Christ. That means cut off and separated from the presence of Christ. No longer counted among His people. So there's a sin going on here that is serious. It's so serious that all of those good things they're doing, all of those good things they're commended for, things that Christians should wholeheartedly pursue. In fact, other churches are, are condemned, are warned because they're not doing some of the things the Ephesians are doing. But there's something going on here so serious that if it isn't fixed, all those other things are meaningless and worthless. And what is it? What does Christ have against them that's so awful? They've lost their first love. They've become loveless. They've lost their love that they had in the beginning. All of their doctrinal warfare, all of their, all of their contending for the faith, all of their, their fighting temptation and pressing on was actually, actually killing them. It's an easy thing to do, isn't it? I mean, it happens gradually, it seems. It never seems to happen overnight. But when a church is always you know, at, at war, always defending itself, always has the sword drawn and there's a battle to be fought, it's easy for Christ to what? To just become a, a proposition. It's easy for Christ just to become an idea to be studied or a weapon to be wielded. But the one thing He stops being, at least in our hearts, is the living God to be loved. And if He's anything less than the living God, He's no God at all. And if what we worship is no God at all, we've fallen into idolatry. Knowing in Ephesus, knowing about God has taken the place of actually knowing Him. Now, there is a night and a day, a night and day difference between knowing about God and knowing God. Now, both are necessary. They are. One is more necessary. You know, think of 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I understand all mysteries and have all knowledge and have prophetic powers, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, what? I am nothing. And if I give away all that I have to the poor, you could see the Ephesian church doing this, couldn't you? Giving away all that I have to the poor and deliver up my body to be burned. But have not love, I gain nothing. Doesn't that sound like what we read in, in the Ephesian church? Doctrinally precise. Probably good preaching. Good works known to the people and to God. Striving to live holy lives. Suffering. Enduring. No love. What's the assessment? 
They're a noisy gong. They are nothing. And all of their good works left them empty. Love is everything in the church. Love is everything in the church. You know, if you have all of your I's dotted and T's crossed, but this isn't there, all you have are dotted I's and crossed T's and that's it. You've got nothing. You become like the Israelites in the wilderness. You know, when God said He's going to send them into the land, send them into the battle, but He wouldn't go with them, you go, I'll stay here, I'll make sure you're successful, but I'm going to stay back. Moses throws himself on the ground, begging that it wouldn't be so. He said, God, if you won't go with us, we don't want to go. They didn't want to go on without the Lord. Well, if the Ephesians were back in the wilderness, it seems that they would have been ready to take the offer. We've been given everything we need by God. We've been told where to go. He's been with us. He's delivered us. And so let's go on and leave him behind. The church is always threatened by this. It's, it's easy to forget about Christ, especially when things are going well. You know, who cries out day and night when everything is looking up? And we're, we're tempted to think as we become stronger in the faith, as we mature in the faith, there are dangers that, that new believers face, there are dangers that mature believers face. We're tempted to think that we can go on and do it alone. The church in Ephesus had been there for 40 years by this point. This is a second generation church. Probably one of the oldest churches in the world at that time. And they think they can go on their own. They know what they need. They have what they need. The Lord is the one who has equipped them. And they're content to go on without Him. But when you're content to go on without Christ... You've lost your love for Him. Now how many times do we, do we set out to do anything? I'm going to get up this morning and be a good husband and a good father. Not apart from Christ you won't. I'm going to go and I'm going to, I'm going to read and I'm going to study the Bible to learn what it has to say. Yes, but if that is divorced from learning and knowing the living God, it's not going to do you any good. Or... I'm just going to do this because this is what has to be done. Well, that's good and you should do it, but don't add, do it at the expense of love for Christ. Do it in order to love Christ. Because God is meant to be known and not just known about. You know, it's like celebrities uh, today. People know so many things about celebrities. They know their birthdays. They know their favorite food. They know their fashion. They know all kinds of things about them. But you know what? They don't actually know them. There's a, there's a quantitative difference between knowing about a person and actually knowing that person. And so many people, they know about God, but they don't know Him. And if they don't know Him, they can't love Him. They're like, uh, they're like the famous preacher John Wesley. He was on a ship going to uh, America, and there on the ship, traveling across the ocean, he saw some Moravian missionaries. There was a storm at sea, and... They spent their time during the storm up on the deck praying, and they were fearless. And so John Wesley said he had to go and speak to them, and so he went, and he talked to them, and eventually the conversation got to this. And one of them asked him, Do you believe that Jesus is your Savior? And Wesley answered, he said, Oh, yes, I know that Jesus is the Savior of the world. Well, of course, said the Moravian. But is He your Savior? And he said he couldn't answer. 
Now this man was laborious. He, he never grew tired in his work. He traveled across the seas to preach to those who never, never heard. He, he founded churches and missionary movements. He was ordained in the Church of England. He knew his theology for the most part, but he didn't know God. And how could he love someone he didn't know? And I'm going to ask all of us here, do you know him? Do you love him? And you say, yes, you can articulate the gospel. You can tell me many things about God. And He's a trinity. He's immutable. He doesn't change. He's the Almighty. He's the Creator. He'll return to judge. He's the Savior. You know all of those things. But do you know Him? Or has your love for Christ, did it dry up long ago and become a river turned to dust? You loved Him. Or you thought you did. Once upon a time. Well, the call here is to repent and to remember and to renew the love that you once had for Jesus. You know, new believers know this, don't they? You know, think about your love for Christ when you first came to know Him. In a way, it's, it's like any relationship. When you first meet somebody, it's different, isn't it? You want to be around them all the time. You talk about them all the time. You want to talk to them all the time. There is a love there for them, but because of a, certainly a deficiency in us as time goes on, that seems to wane. And it stops becoming as easy as it once was, and it starts to take work, doesn't it? Anybody who's been married for any length of time knows this. It takes work to stay in love. It, and, and if you don't, it's, it's not just going to magically happen. You know, imagine a husband and wife. They may love each other greatly, but as time goes on, there is a danger of familiarity, isn't there? Of apathy, of coldness. But imagine that maybe this husband had a job in the, in the public sphere, and very often he was attacked by people in the news or commentators or people on the streets. He didn't... People were, were after him. He had certain policies. Let's say he's a politician. He had certain policies that people really didn't like. And so his wife is always on the defense, always coming to protect him, right? She, she writes back in the papers. She, she puts videos up. She's defending her husband all the time. Very zealous to do it. But then she never actually talked to him. And when he was around, she ignored him. It's not hard to imagine, is it? It's not hard to imagine being so busy defending or serving somebody that you actually don't have time to love them. It's even easier to fall into. And if you have, if you say, yeah, that, that sounds a lot like my relationship with Christ. If you have fallen into it, then remember. There's a call here to the love you had at first. Remember what Christ has done for you. In fact, we're, we're going to remember this morning the love of Christ for us as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. But, but if you wonder, well, how do I increase my love for Christ? How do I repent? How do I do this thing that Christ is calling me to do? You do it by, in the first instance to this church at Ephesians, at Ephesus. You remember who He is. 
You remember what He's done. You remember where you were and let the love of Christ and the Gospel warm your heart and keep it sincere in its love for Jesus. Otherwise, the only alternative is a slow and a near imperceptible falling away. The church in Ephesus, they probably thought that they were doing well. Obviously. I think anybody in that church would probably think it was doing well. And yet they were on the very verge of collapse. They were, they were on a spiritual fault line that was about to give way and they were going to have their lampstand removed. Don't let that be you. You think things are going well. I'm, I'm growing in my, in my knowledge of doctrine. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm getting more precise. I'm putting certain sins to death. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm doing more good works in the kingdom. All of those things are good. Other churches are, are warned for not doing things that the Ephesians are commended for. God commends Ephesians for hating the works of the Nicolaitans. Pergamum is condemned or accused for tolerating them. So don't think that these things are unimportant. They earn the commendation of Christ. But all of them, without love for Him, leads to the lampstand being removed. The lights going out. And so if your love for Christ is dull and your heart is cold, then you repent and you seek Him. And you say, how can I seek Him? My heart's cold. Then seek Him if your heart is cold and confess the cold heart towards Him and press on to love the Lord. And if you can't remember, this I really don't have anything to look back to. So be honest with yourself. Have you ever really loved the Lord Jesus? And, and I'm talking to people who call themselves Christians. Do you know Him? And so, well, I know doctrine. Well, I live righteously. Well, I read the Bible. I endure trials. I was baptized as a child. I go to church. Well, that's all good, but do you love Christ? Does He know you? This is of the first importance for a believer to know God and to love Him. I think of Matthew 7. Remember what it says? Many will come to me on that day and saying, saying Lord, Lord, did we not cast out uh, demons in Your name and in Your name perform many uh, mighty works and in Your name perform many miracles? And then I will say to them, Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. And you see what Jesus is saying? They came and they said, we've done this, we've done that, we've done all of these things. But Jesus says, yes, you have. But I don't know who you are. And they're dismissed. I heard the example before. You know, I, I, I lived for, uh, for three years in Washington, D.C. And there are all kinds of places in Washington, D.C. where you can't go. <laughs> all kinds of places. You know, you, 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 I couldn't go to the NASA Space Center. That was, that was uh, not a place for anybody to walk into. But actually, one of my good friends was a, was a scientist, an engineer at the NASA Space Center. And he told me, he said, if you ever want a tour, just ask. I'll take you through. So if I'd gone up to the gates and said, I know, I know uh, Ray. It's my friend there. I know, I know Ray Baldwin. They're going to say, so what? It's off limits. But if I'm standing there and Ray comes out and says, hey, that's my friend Corey, shows him his badge, let him in, I'm going to go in. I'm going to see the, the NASA Research Space Center there in Washington, D.C. Why? Because the person who has the authority knows me. It's the same for so many people. 
We know a lot about God, but do we know Him? And more importantly, does He know us? There can't be love for God if He isn't known. Now verse 6, Jesus has one more commendation. He says, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans. That's a good thing. Because Jesus hates the work of the Nicolaitans too. And we'll, we'll come back to the Nicolaitans next week at the church of Pergamum. But this commendation is, is unique in that it, it comes after the warning. All the other rest of the commendations come before. And, and what does this come for? I think it's meant to motivate the Ephesians. Right? We, we don't know what the Nicolaitans taught. You know, we, we have some ideas. Arrhenius, in church history in particular, he, he had a few ideas about what the Nicolaitans were, what they taught. We don't know for sure. It's hard to substantiate them. But this, I, I think what Jesus is telling the, Nicola, uh, the, the Ephesians is, you hate the right things. You, you hate the things that will turn your heart away. But don't mistake that for love for Christ. It's easy to look around the world and get, and get angry about all kinds of things that are wrong. It's easy to look around in the world and get angry about things that say, that's going to that's gonna harm the church. That's going to lead people uh, down a path they shouldn't go down. That's a broad road that leads to destruction. Don't mistake that for love for Christ. It's halfway there. There's, fur there's further left to go. There must be an actual, real love. It doesn't mean compromise. It doesn't mean stop contending for the faith. It means press on, but press on with Christ. And if you do, if you love Him, if you repent and or renew your love for Him, if you overcome, right, and conquer this lovelessness because that's what we're called to do to he who overcomes overcomes what to he who conquers conquers what conquers the lovelessness of their own heart what does he say you will be granted to eat from the tree of life in the paradise of God whatever they thought they were gaining by their war they'd lost more of it and what's promised to them is the tree of life you know you know the symbol for Artemis in almost every picture and tapestry and mosaic they've dug up, it's Artemis with a tree, a fig tree. She's hunting in the woods and you have, so the, you have the goddess and a tree. They're contending against that fig tree, against Artemis, against the paganism in Ephesus. Jesus tells them, overcome your lovelessness and you will receive the greater tree in the paradise of God. It's a direct condemnation of Artemis, the goddess of the the goddess of the of the of, of, of the hunt. He tells this to the believers in Ephesus to remind them to be faithful. He tells it to the individuals in the church to overcome and love God again. So what happens? What happened to the church at Ephesus? Well history tells us the Ephesian church did repent. And afterward, they continued to flourish as a center for missions and for doctrine and for Christianity and in the love of the Lord for many more years. 
sales of idols dropped off. And then in 242 A.D., the, the people, the people in Ephesus, the people who were so zealous for their goddess that they once screened for hours on end, great as Artemis of the Ephesians, in 2042, when the temple of Artemis burned to the ground, the people of the city couldn't even be bothered to rebuild it. It's one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, a center of pagan domination. But 200 years of Christian witness set the city free. But none of that would have happened had they not heard and kept the voice of their Lord Jesus and returned to Him in love. You know, do you know that during the time of persecution in Asia Minor, the church where Ephesus was kind of the, the capital church in, by the year 300, so 200 years later, do you know what percentage of the population of Asia Minor were Christian? This is not, in, this is not the time when Christianity was the, the religion of the Roman Empire. This is before that. This is when being a Christian could get you into hot water. You know what percentage of the churches in Asia Minor, or of the people in Asia Minor, called themselves Christians? 80%. 80%. These churches that conquered, overcame, pressed on. They did press on. And 150 years later, eight out of every ten people you would meet was a Christian. None of that would have happened had they not repented and returned to the Lord in love. Now, I don't know where your hearts are here this morning. That, that was with the Ephesians. That doesn't say anything about us. And I don't know where your hearts are. You know, if Christ still has a room there, or if He was silently evicted long ago, but, but you know, you know whether or not you love the Lord, just as sure as you know whether or not you love somebody else. And I don't mean you know, I love theology and doctrine and, and apologetics, but do you love Jesus? And say, so what's that mean? You want to spend time with Him. You want to pray to Him, talk to Him. You know Him. You know what it means to love somebody else. And if not, say, I've lost that love. Jesus' message to you, repent and remember the love you had at first. So go to Christ. Go to Him if the only thing you have is a cold, shriveled, compromising heart. If you hear His voice this morning, go to Him and repent. And to those who do, they will overcome. To those who love Him, they will conquer. And God promises to them to walk with Him in a paradise of the new heavens with the tree of life there in their midst. Eternal life in paradise with God awaits all those who love Him. Let's pray. Lord, You know where the hearts of all men are. Your eyes are like fire. They see through all things. Lord, You see whether we love You or not. You see whether we, whether we have become weary in our love or distracted in other things. And Lord, if there are people here who are confused, I don't know if I love the Lord or not. Lord, You know. 
And I pray that they would take their confusion to you who can make all things straight. And that you would help us, God, to know our love for you. Help your church to be strong and steadfast in Christ. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.